Hey there, everybody. It's AJ. Welcome back to another episode of Outdoors Podcast. Today, my guest is a really exciting interview. Uh, I've been trying to put this together for quite some time and at my own fault, haven't really gotten around to it. But uh, I'm super excited that we got it out of the way before he actually leaves on his journey. Today, my guest is Nick from Triple Nickel Outdoors on YouTube and Instagram, uh, Facebook as well. Nick is a firefighter from the state of New York. He is a father and a husband. Uh, he's a former member of the United States Air Force, and he has got a huge adventure in front of him coming up on July 25th. Nick is going to be departing on the John Muir Trail, coming out of Yosemite National Park and hiking northbound over 200 miles, over 37,000 feet of elevation. It's an enormous undertaking. Uh, Nick's actually going to be heading out solo, uh, although I do have some indications that that may uh, change throughout the trip. So some really, really fun facts that we talk about around the John Muir Trail itself, the preparations that he's gone through, what kind of expectations he has, what equipment changes he's made, all kinds of stuff, along with just a whole bevy of other things, all backpacking. Uh, Nick and I have really enjoyed getting to know each other and this interview really brought out some really fun things about Nick's personality and just the way he thinks about backpacking, some of the similarities and some of the differences in our personality. So it was really fun. This is a super great interview, really one of my favorite that I've done on the podcast. So uh, you know you're going to have a great, great time. I promise you that. Let's go ahead and dig right in. All right, we are live. Welcome, sir. Welcome. AJ, how are you doing? I'm doing really good, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Getting ready. Awesome. Yep. Yeah, dude. So how how many weeks out? Uh, 10 days. 10 days. Holy cow. So it's creeping up on you. Yep. Creeping up. It'll be uh, around here, around the corner. Yeah. And how far? So for everybody that doesn't know, uh, Nick, you are a fireman in New York City. You are I a am. family guy. You've married guy, kids, correct? I am. I'm married. I have three kids. Um, I'm a firefighter, actually, uh, in a city right outside of Manhattan. And uh, yeah, live in New York, loving it. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, thank you for all the work that you do. Very much thank appreciative you. to all of our first responders. That's really awesome. Thank you very much. And uh, from my knowledge, you are also a former military guy, correct? That was kind of the start of your career. Yes. So after I got out of high school, I did four and a half years in the Air Force. And then after the Air Force, I got on the fire department. And then here we are today. What'd you do in the Air Force? I worked on survival equipment that was prepositioned aboard aircrafts. So my, my uh, AFSC or my job title was called air crew life support. So easiest way to explain is if your plane was going overseas, we would preposition all the survival gear to keep you alive until rescue could come. So life rafts, life vests, uh, drop down masks, like all that kind of stuff. If you worked on a fighter unit, That's we pretty worked cool. on, yeah, yeah. Worked on fighters. We worked on G suits, helmets oxygen masks so we had a pretty pretty cool job pretty responsible job it was a lot of fun that's pretty cool did you enjoy overall did you enjoy your time in the air force oh 100 percent. yeah awesome. yeah i have uh, i have a son that just graduated from high school and it's looking like he's gonna go in also oh no joke that's so, cool yeah 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 it's just it, there's a lot of benefits to the military it gives you a sense of you know national pride it gives you a little uh, patriotism like all the all good things work ethic just a, yeah. Uh, so, so uh, outside of you know what I do in the outdoor space, I am in cybersecurity and or oh, okay. kind of I'm, I'm a communications and marketing guy for a cybersecurity organization. And a lot of people in cybersecurity have come over from 
Air Force, Army, Navy, Department of Defense, the Pentagon, different branches, the CIA, FBI, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we consistently see from the folks that are coming out of those branches, coming out of those types of positions and into kind of more of the private sector is discipline yeah. and selflessness, right? Where they're not out for them. They're out for the greater mission. They're out for the bigger program. Uh, right, and right, that right. just very much lends itself uh, to exactly to what you do. So that's really awesome. Yeah. And especially nowadays, like it's so hard for kids coming out of high school to, to find a career right off the bat and yeah join the military gives you a sense of maturity work ethic like i said before uh, discipline like you said it's just it's just a it makes you a more well-rounded person and it's only four years you know commitment and it gives you a chance to really see who you are and what you're capable of and they give you money for college they give you a job so what's better than that you know i get to see the world for sure where all did you where all did you travel so I, uh, I was stationed in Northern Texas at Shepard Air Force Base. And then from there, I went to Jersey to McGuire Air Force Base. And that was the two uh, duty stations that I was stationed at. I did do, uh, I did a week art survival class in Alaska. So I was there for about five days. Um, but I didn't really see any overseas action because I had the three kids. So I stayed stateside sure. on, the, on the missions that were going back over on, uh, on our front. Good for you, man. That's awesome. Thank you. So it's it's kind of interesting. You know, you actually have this background in building in survival equipment, right? And then obviously uh, you have a lot of equipment and a lot of stuff that you use in your firefighting job uh, yes. to survive and to keep people safe. Uh, that transitions, you know, you and I have had several conversations and I want to kind of get into how you and I know each other and how we've gotten to, to be friends and all that kind of thing, which I think is really unique. That's one of the things that I love. Oh yeah, yeah about yeah. the internet about the podcast about everything is like i get to meet guys like you and have these conversations and start friendships and start talking about gear and follow your journeys and your trips get envious of all the places you get to go because you're on the east coast you're not here in the midwest where our tallest mountain's about <laughs> 1800 feet tall <laughs> you still um, get out there aj though so that's good hey yeah man we're trying so uh in in st louis where i'm at you know the summertime kind of converts to more float trips and kind of the stuff that you can do on the water because i mean it's been 94 five-ish degrees most of the week uh, with you know 80% humidity. It's, it feels like it's in the hundreds. So oh, it's yeah, pretty brutal. Imagine. And the idea of putting on a pack and cruising you know, 10, 15 miles a day is just unbearable in those kinds of conditions and the, the amount of bugs and everything we've got out. So uh, I'm glad that you know, you're in a, an, in a place where you can go. I don't know. Do you follow the Shill Brothers at all? Oh, you know who those um, guys I are? I do. Yeah. Uh, to, to go off what you just said, you know, from uh, we both met each other in the hammock camping forums yeah so all of these it's kind of like we all kind of keep abreast on uh, everyone in the industry i guess you could yeah. say you know between yeah. us in the forums and the guys on youtube that hammock camp and all these kind of people yes yeah, so the shell brothers syntax frozen like all these guys i think we I, all kind of know the same people or follow the same i people. was so jealous when i saw your photo with frozen Oh yeah, <laughs> that had to be it's so I'll, I'll share with you a quicker experience. And then I want to hear about that. And then I want to kind of sure. dig into your John Muir trail experience. But, um, when I first started hammock backpacking was probably, I want to say about five years ago now. And I've been a, a backpacker through kind of my early life, the, the grade school that I went to oddly enough, did a bunch of kind of outdoor education and backpacking and portaging and stuff like that. 
Uh, and then I got away from it through my kind of high school and college years. I got really serious about football. I played through college and that was kind of my thing. And then I got super into girls, obviously, and jobs and all that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden I went on a float trip with some of my buddies, uh, kind of in my mid to late twenties and went, Oh yeah, I love being outside. I love doing this. I love disconnecting and just going and kind of testing myself and struggling through it. And so I started backpacking again. I started looking at YouTube like crazy and doing all this research and I got into the hammocks and there was a guy that, that backpacks in Missouri, uh, that's not nearly as prominent. His channels kind of fallen way off, but, uh, it used to be this dude, um, that would go by the, the name scar or Skygazer, And he was really great. Okay. And he had some really good, uh, videos and his base weight was down to like 11 pounds. And I was like, man, this is the guy that, you know, I'm going to kind of model myself after. And then they threw up a group hang on, um, you know, on the forum, which for any of you guys that are listening that don't know what a group hang is, it may kind of sound weird. Uh, a group hang is just where a bunch <laughs> of hammock hammer or hammock campers go out and camp together. Right. So you got a bunch of, of people yeah. hanging from trees all over the place. And I yes, yes. <laughs> probably like two hours away from, from St. Louis. I go down there. I'm on my own. I'm walking through the trail and all of a sudden there he is. He's on the trail in front of me. And it was oh, no way, really. It was, it was like seeing a TV star up front and personal, but it was this dude from YouTube <laughs> and I was yeah, yeah, starstruck. Yeah. It's, it's a weird, <laughs> it yeah, was really odd. weird now, you know, <laughs> it was really odd. And then I got to spend the weekend, you know, hanging out with them and a bunch of other really great guys. And I, I formed a couple of good friendships from some of the guys that were on the trip. Some of the guys, uh, like Derek, uh, Derek Kaufman, who was on one of the first couple of episodes of the, the podcast, right. um, who's also a hammock guy. One of the dudes that kind of makes all of his own stuff. And it was just one of those moments where I was like, oh my God, you can get starstruck from a YouTuber that's got like, you know, a couple thousand subscribers. No, like, I know. Like that, but, but you know, he's in your, your, your area. So you kind of like, yeah, yeah. just get that starstruck kind of feeling. Yeah. So what, what, tell uh, so me that's, about I, the similar, situation where you met Frozen. So I've been following, he post uh, hammock camping videos on YouTube and I follow him. And when he was doing the AT, I had reached out to him and said, listen, if you're making your way up to New York, let me know if you need anything. I'd be willing to give you some trail magic or help you out any way that I can. So as he was making his way up the trail, I saw that he was coming to New York and I reached out to him and uh, where we met is a shelter right off the ATM about, you know, five to 10 minutes from there. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, just ended up working out. I brought him and his group a bunch of stuff. They were really, really happy about that. And it was nice to just actually uh, put a face to the videos, you know, to see him in person. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Was, really... it, was he what you expected in person? Is he pretty consistent to what you see online? Uh, yeah, except for the fact that I'm 6'4 and he's 5'6, I think. So that oh, was a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're a big dude, man. Yeah. Like I said, I'm 6'4. So, uh, I, Everything that I own it gets me out of that lightweight category when I go hiking. <laughs> well, yeah, and I would also have cute. to imagine that just finding gear that fits right has got to be a challenge. It's all extra large stuff. Between yeah, the, you know, you sure. got your you got your pad, you got your pants, you got you know every the frames of the backpacks, the liter of size of the actual you know volume of it. It's just everything is going to push that base weight up a couple of a uh, couple of pounds a couple for of sure for sure so going into your and so for everybody that that doesn't know uh your big journey coming up here in 10 days the john muir trail uh one of those bucket list hikes that i think just about every backpacker dreams they can do over the course of their lifetime yeah uh, yeah so tell tell me a little bit give me the details 
of the hike itself? How far is it? What's the elevation? Where's it, where are you going from and to? Okay. So the John Muir Trail is in the Sierra Nevada mountain range out in California. Uh, it starts in Yosemite National Park and then finishes on the top of Mount Whitney, which is the tallest peak in the United States at 14,505 feet. Wow. Um, I mean, it's 211 miles long, that entire trip. And then there's a, uh, a trail that connects from the top of Mount Whitney out to Whitney Portal, which is a starting trailhead on the southern side. Sure. And that's another 10 or 11 miles. So it's going to, I have a couple side trips planned. I want to go do Half Dome, Cloud Dress, a couple of things. I'm going to spend a couple of days in Yosemite when I'm there. Oh, wow. So I'm looking to do probably around like 240-ish miles when Holy it's all said and done. Yeah. And I think roughly there's like 47,000 feet of elevation gain when it's all oh said and done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's definitely a hump, definitely a workload. And I'm from the East Coast. So I'm not used to elevation. Uh, so that's going to you know, be something that uh, I'm looking forward to, but I'm cautiously uh, planning for that uh, to get yeah, that so, feeling. So with that in mind, how far uh, ahead of time are you planning on going out? Are you doing any elevation acclimation? Is it all kind of in the trip baked in? I mean, I've been to Yosemite. I was there. My girlfriend and I took a Yosemite trip, uh, I want to say two years ago. And right, right, right. I remember about that. Yep. Five days in the park. And, um, you know, one of the things that we did was on that particular trip, we, we went in, we did like three days, two nights of backpacking. We left the park. We went out about an hour away. We got a, you know, a small hotel room. We got a beer, some pizza, and then we went back in after a nice shower and a nice sleep. Uh, then we went back in for another three days and two nights. So we kind of saw a couple of different pieces of the park, but Yosemite is so big. Right. Uh, that what you know, what did you do when you were there? What did stop. you see? Yeah. So we were really confused. Uh, we I, I have not had the best record of doing the right amount of research before we go on these trips. Okay. Sometimes <laughs> I think we're just kind of winging it. And uh, one of the things that I didn't realize about Yosemite, which is one of the things that I really like to try and emphasize on a future video, is what backpacking actually looks like in Yosemite from the standpoint of where you can camp and where you can't. And so, uh, without getting into too many details, we showed up on the first night and we're planning on hiking the majority of the kind of loop down in the basin. Okay. And that's about probably 12 miles. If you go up from mirror Lake all the way down to around tunnel view and then all the way back up. Okay. And that kind of takes you from, you know, half dome village down to the base of the, the basin and then back. And we were planning on kind of going down the first night and staying somewhere near Artist Point, which is about, a, I don't know, a quarter of a mile up the mountain from Tunnel View. And it's this really, I'll send you some photos. It's pretty incredible. Okay. Um, it's, I would say, one of the best views in the park that nobody ever goes to. And it's only because it's about a mile and a half up a road that's kind of got some elevation and hiking to it that most people just won't do it. Mm -hmm. And we were up there with this unbelievable panoramic view of the entire valley completely by ourselves for an hour and a half. I mean, my girlfriend and I sat up there just in awe. That's awesome. Didn't see another human. It was incredible, which in Yosemite is kind of hard to do. There's people yeah, everywhere. No, and that probably added to the enjoyment of it, the fact that you were able to experience that, you know, with the, just the two of you. Yeah, yeah. So what we found out when we showed up and we had spoken to a ranger, obviously we had to get our permits and things on where we were going to be leaving from and where we were going to be staying. Yosemite is a little bit unique in the fact that for anybody that hasn't been there, most of the big national parks out West, 
they have very specific campsites and you are requesting your permits per campsite per night. Right, right, Yosemite, right. on the other hand, does the majority of their permitting by trailhead and what day you're leaving. And so they're more concerned about the total traffic that's leaving on a given trail on a given day versus right. who's out there. And right. um, so we were so used to just like, oh, you reserve a campsite. Well, when we got to Yosemite or when we did our permitting, they basically just said, well, you have to get into the wilderness area. And we didn't really understand what that means, apparently. Okay. And so when we showed up to do our first, you know, two day, three day, two trip um, or three day, two night trip, we went in, we got our permits and we were kind of telling the ranger what we we're planning on doing. And the ranger goes, yeah, you can't do that. Right. And we went, what do you mean? And they go, well, you're not where you're planning on staying. You're not getting far enough outside of the, the basin to get up into the wilderness area. You're essentially not climbing the side of the, the, right, of the right. bathtub. Right. They want you out of wherever it is you are and back in the exactly. backwards place. Exactly. And so I will say this, we walked up the Pohono trail from artist point, which leads you into the wilderness, whether we hit the actual wilderness boundary or not, before we pulled over off the side of the trail and set up our hammocks, uh -huh. I cannot confirm or deny on the radio. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but I will say we were way out, nobody else around very remote, it was very kind of fun and cool. And then we ended up walking just back down towards our artist point that day, taking the kind of valley loop up to mirror lake did the same kind of thing, kind of confirm, can't confirm or deny where we stayed. Uh, but we found a place to sleep that second night. And then the second trip that we did, uh, when we came back in a couple of days later was a lot more official. We started up at, um, we parked at, uh, why can't I think of the name of it? What's the point? Glacier point. Glacier point. Yep. Uh, we parked at, That's where I we start, parked yep. at Glacier point, And then we walked from there down through Taft point and over to like Brideville falls. And mm -hmm. that was also on the Pohono Trail, just coming up the other side. And a lot of folks take that um, four mile trail straight yep. up the side up to Glacier Point. So from the valley, we kind of came and drove to it from the other side. And then we stayed at that campsite for a night. And then we actually ditched our gear. This is one of the scariest moments I've had in backpacking just because I'm so attached to my gear. My girlfriend said, hey, you know, we're going to come back to this campsite tomorrow night but we're going to come at it from a different angle. We wanted to walk through McGurk Meadows. Mm -hmm. And so we were going to drive or we were going to walk back out from where we came past half point to Glacier Point, get our car. We drove down to the McGurk Meadows trailhead, parked there and then walked right back to the same campsite. And so my girlfriend said, well, why are we just going to carry our gear right. all the you way out and all the way there? back? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not just going to leave all our stuff set up here and hope it's here when I get back. She goes, great, let's just, you know, ditch our backpacks somewhere where nobody's going to find them. And so that's exactly what we did. We walked up towards uh, Dewey Point and Crocker Point, kind of past Bridevale Creek Falls. We kind of found where the, the McGurk Meadow Trail was going to come in. And then we just walked about 60 yards into the woods, found a big giant tree that had fallen, took our packs off. Sarah took hers off. I took uh -huh. the, the liner out of mine that basically holds everything. I've got one of those Z-Packs, Cuban fiber pack liners. Uh-huh and pulled that thing out took just kind of the basic essentials some water things like that threw it in my i've got a ula ohm as my primary backpack and i just kind of took that with probably five pounds worth of gear in it and sarah we basically buried our backpack under a, a bunch of brush that's and amazing just <laughs> super hit it we walked out with five pounds on our back we walked in with five pounds on my back she had nothing 
and it made the day really, really enjoyable. I'm really glad we did it. Luckily, all of our stuff was there. Nobody was going to find it. We tagged it on the GPS so we knew exactly where it was going to be. Um, you know, my only fear was that like an animal or something. Yeah, that would be my it. concern also is that, it, yeah. you know, not even people, but just animals or anything with the, cause it's got a little bit of a scent from sweat or whatever like that. So, exactly. So I yeah. was a little bit nervous, but you know, mainly unfounded. We got back to it. Everything was great. We set up for a second night there at Brideville and then we got out the next day. So we saw almost none of the North side of the Valley where, I mean, we were, we saw it from down underneath. We saw El Cap, we saw, you know, all the fun stuff, but we didn't climb up you know, up there to cloud split or any of that kind of stuff. So right. uh, hopefully on the next trip, we'll get to go see some of that stuff, get up kind of up atop the basin. Right. Uh, but I'll tell is you it, what, Glacier yeah. Point and Taft Point were breathtaking. Yeah. So that, that's, this is my first time out West. So I wanted to try and experience as much as I could while I was there. Sure. So that plays into my itinerary of how I tried to plan, you know, my days when I was uh, figuring out how long I was going to be out West. So I'm going to spend a, a, probably like a day and a half more than your average JMT here going through that area because, like sure. I said, I want I want to do Half Dome. Cloud Dress is kind of a side trail off of uh, the actual JMT, and then just making my way out over the Yosemite border. I'm really not in a rush to start the trail because if we want to talk about later my itinerary, I'm meeting a couple friends outside of Yosemite that are going to hike a couple of days with me in the, on the John Muir Trail. Oh, awesome. So I can start, yeah, I can start a little bit slower uh, and not have to worry about trying to get a lot of mileage out in the beginning because I have uh, friends that are going to meet, meet me out in like a week. That's awesome. That's fantastic. I know um, when yeah, you so, originally applied for your permits, how long have you been applying for permits? Just so everybody knows, because I think this is important. Yeah, five years. <laughs> so you've been, this is your fifth year applying for a permit. Yeah, basically, because, so I wanted to, like I said before, I wanted to start in Yosemite. So... If you start in Yosemite, you have to apply to a lottery process. You have to apply to the lottery process to get the permit to hike the John Muir Trail. Yeah. So basically how it works is six months prior to whatever day that you are planning to hike, you go online and there's a whole application process. They want to know, uh, like you said before about the starting trailheads, there's five trailheads in Yosemite that you can start from in order to hike the trail. Sure. And you would put those in order of importance of the one that you wanted to start at the most to the least. And then if there was availability at that trailhead when your permit was pulled, then you can start at that one. And then it'll just go down the list to the one that has availability will allow you to start uh, from that one. I will say so, one of the things that I have been shocked by, uh, and I'm a technology guy, I'm in marketing communications. I've worked for companies that have built websites and online interfaces for a decade now. Uh, the process and, and don't get me wrong. I've said this in every podcast. I'll say this till my dying day. I don't blame the parks. I know mm -hmm. that they're underfunded. I know that they're understaffed. So this is not on them. And, and I also recognize like one of the stats that I found in Yosemite is about three and a half to 4 million visitors a year to Yosemite national park. Yeah. 90 some odd percent of them never leave the, the basin of the, the, the park, it's three and a half square miles. I mean, everybody right. pretty much just sits in this little pocket. Uh, and, you know, for anybody that doesn't know, Yosemite National Park is absolutely gargantuan. I think it's like 750,000 acres or something like that. It's enormous. Um, yeah, well, and, I guess they, like you just said, they want to try and limit the footprint that those people could impact if they go outside of the valley. So I guess that's why they have such a strength, uh, stringent, uh, 
permit process because they don't want to yeah. have as much they want to try and limit as much human impact yeah 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 and there's just not that i mean surprisingly um, there's so, yeah. not that many backpackers that that go after those permits i think there's about seventy thousand backpackers in yosemite and so i also recognize we also probably spend the least money out of anybody that visits the park because we don't go to the hotels we don't eat in the restaurants we just show up park our car and leave right um for the most part and so I also recognize they're not going to put a ton of resources into appeasing us, but the the process of pulling permits or requesting permits seems so crazy outdated to me. The way that they do that, I mean, most of the parks are still running off spreadsheets where you apply, they pull down one shared yeah. spreadsheet that's the most updated. They check it across, they put in the, the changes, they upload it back. And the chances that some mm -hmm. other ranger has pulled over another spreadsheet and is overlapping the one. I mean, I, I, when we went to Colorado, I can't tell you how many times we had to go back and forth uh, in Rocky Mountain National Park trying to figure out which ones were available. It was a nightmare. So I wish somebody had the, way yeah, yeah. the resources to kind of revamp that system and modernize it because I think it would make uh, the stress on yeah, it seems like and everybody a lot easier. It seems like, like you said, all the national parks are kind of going through this because we went to Zion last year and I had a similar experience with the permit process where it was just, uh, you know, it was crazy. I tried to plan something for Glacier also, and I, there's only so many permits available for an entire world that wants to go and see these areas. Yeah. And, and so it's you know, really hard just... to try and, you know, get where you want to go. Yeah. And if you decide that, you know, that's the park you want to go to and you're kind of a little uninformed. I mean, I can't tell you when we were in Yosemite how many people were showing up to the permit station that just had no right. idea what well, was that, going on. Yeah, and I think so. My The fact that I went to Zion last year, that was my first experience with the whole permitting process, and I, w I was uneducated and didn't really understand it at all. So I learned a lot from that uh, that experience. And now when I, I think that's maybe why I ended up getting the permit this year, because I knew a little bit more about I, I can't really say that, but I just I, I knew more how the process works and I knew more what to expect. So my hopes weren't up because I knew how many people were doing the trails and, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, um, you recognize the challenge. But it's, it's like I said, there's only so many permits available and everyone wants to go and see these places. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, kind of digging back into yeah. a little bit more of your backstory. How long have you been backpacking? What got you into it? All my kids, my, my family. Yeah, that's really what drew me to it. My father used to backpack when we were younger. So we did a couple, I live a couple minutes off from the Appalachian Trail. And we would go out and do day hikes. And my father's done a little bit of Maine and stuff like that. So when my kids got to the age that I could take them out, I you know I didn't want to bring them to the movies anymore, do stuff like that. So I wanted something that we could all do together as a family. And I remember doing that as a kid. So there's a couple things uh, in the area that I live that are really, really nice and they're not too long for the payoff for the views. So I ended up going out one day by myself and seeing if it was doable for the kids to come out. And sure enough, I enjoyed it so much that the, you know, I brought the family out. We had lunch at the top of this place called Anthony's Nose, which is right when you come in uh, from the Bear Mountain Bridge on the Appalachian Trail. Sure. I don't know if you remember if you watch a couple of the videos, but there's that zoo in, in Bear Mountain. I don't know if you remember that at all, but right on the other side, there's a nice overlook that overlooks the whole Hudson Valley. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I took the kids up there and yeah, they had a good time and I kept with it. I kept doing day hikes around the area and that led into doing backpacking. 
Uh, I want to experience a little bit more stuff. So the more miles you do a day, you can see a lot more things. And, you know, if you are self-sufficient and learn how to do the backpacking, then you can actually stay out overnight and get to see a couple other things while you're out back. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, did you, yes. did you kind of dig into the hammock camping thing right away or was that kind of a, an evolution? I think I started, I think everyone starts with a tent because that's just normal, you know, yeah, but easiest, while sure. I was on, I, I think I've been a pretty avid day hiker for the last like eight or nine years and then tenting or backpacking for the last six and hammock camping for like, like you did like around four or five years. Sure. And then I started Googling different uh, backpacking techniques and blah, blah, blah. And I think what let, you know, you know what happened? I read an article from Andrew Skirka. Oh, really? And he started talking about a bunch of different camping techniques and hammocking was one of them. So I think in the article, he started to research, like, if you live on the East Coast, like, that's the way to go because of the trees and this and that and blah, blah, blah. So I started to do a little bit of research into that. And I think I joined... The hammockforums.net, the the actual the the, the uh, forum itself, not the one on Facebook that we're yeah that we're associated with, but the one you know the .net version, the old school, yeah, 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 yeah. The so OG. I just started the <laughs> the original gangster, yep, yeah. Uh, and I think that I just started to look around at a bunch of different like how you do it and what you need and this and that and blah blah blah. So by chance, right after that, I think REI had a sale on. Eno hammocks, sure. you know, because I think that's, once again, that's like the evolution, but that's where everybody goes, I bought one and got into it. And like, like I said, of being six foot four, I noticed that it was just too small for, for me to get comfortable in. Sure. Um, but then around the same time I ended up returning that hammock and then I ordered a dream hammock. I ordered a dream hammock Thunderbird. They don't make that oh, wow. model anymore. Yeah, but I, you know, like I said, I did my research. I saw a couple of the cottage vendors that were out there that had good products available. So I tried to do my research and see what I would want and the way that I wanted it. So like I said, I got that Thunderbird model and it was an amazing hammock and it really was nice breaking into that, that type of industry. And from there, I've just, I've experimented with pretty much every type of hammock available, I think. Oh, have you really? As far as gathered in, I, I haven't really tried any bridge style or 90 degree styles, but I've tried a lot of the dream hammock models. I had a Dutchware chameleon for a little bit. I had a Blackbird XLC. And uh, the final hammock that I'm using now is uh, dream hammock Darien. Tell me about your experience with the chameleon. Cause that's a, a hammock that I've considered pretty consistently and just haven't pulled the trigger on yet. Um, yep. Tell me about what you liked about it and what you didn't. Um, I think because I started in a dream hammock Everything else kind of didn't matter because sure. I knew what I liked. I knew how I liked it. And I was able to customize the hammock exactly how I wanted it. Um, so when you get the chameleon, it's got a, it's very versatile and it's, you can cut, you can add pieces along the way. You don't really have to buy everything at once. Right. So I think if you're just breaking into hammock camping, it's, it's a good piece to maybe check out, but if you've been doing it or you're confident in the way that you like your setup done. I, I think that dream hammock's just the way to go because that's they have just, that's you, the, the, the Rolls Royce. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's just, you, it's so specific to how exactly you want it, that you can, you, the, the fabric type, the width, the length, um, you know, everything about it, how you want it set up, they can really, really get it to exactly what you want. Uh, so that's just about, a really I've, positive feature that I think I, that's why I keep 
Yeah, and I've I've heard really really good things about the experience, right? About just working with them. I've heard they're really really fun to work with, and that they're very conscious of kind of people right. that are are either new to this or really experienced, and they really work with you to get it where you want to go. Is that was that your experience? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, Brandy and Deanna over there are great people, and I bought this is my. I think I bought four hammocks from them over the last four or five years. Oh, have you really? And yeah, 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 yeah. Like I had a Thunderbird, I had a Sparrow. So for those, there's different models you can get, and they all have different features. So the sure. Thunderbird had the bug net was integrated but removable. I'm sorry, the the bug net was removable. It wasn't sewn into the actual hammocks. You can take yeah. it off. You could put an overcover on, so it allowed you to get into winter camping because it was a little. It kept in some of the heat. The Sparrow was a similar design to that one, but how the zippers were configured is, is a little bit different. So I want to experiment with that. And then, like I said, the, the Darien that I have now, it has a zipper on one side, so it saves a little bit of weight that way. And, uh, you know, I, I just think the Darien's a, a great backpacking hammock. Yeah, uh, but I, to I, go off your point about the Dream, the uh, Dutchware Chameleon, I don't, if, like I said, the fact that everything's, he has inventory there. So you don't have to wait. There's no lead times. You could pretty much get it. I think I got mine within like five to six days. So it definitely, it's definitely a great piece of gear. Um, but like I said, I think that my first experience with hammock camping, I had a really good start. So I just kept uh, kept going with what I started off with. Yeah, absolutely. And then what kind of uh, quilts do you normally use? Uh, so I have two sets. I have a hammock gear burrow and incubator 40 degree set cool and then i have an underground quilts bandit and zeppelin 20 degree set and which do, do you have a preference on either one or they both serve their purposes yeah no i think they both serve their purpose but i think that the like as far as side by side i think the underground quilts one has a is a little bit like a step above the hammock gear oh you quilts. think so yeah, yeah, yeah. You could just maybe it's just the materials they use because they're both exceptionally made. But yeah, I just think like the materials that uh, underground quilts has, it just feels a little bit nicer. Cool. Yeah, I've but that's got... not, that's not a knock on hammock gear at all. There, that the quilts that they have are amazing. Also, I just think that when I see both of them side by side, I have a little bit more like wow factor with the underground quilts quilt. That's hey man, everybody's got their personal preference. There's nothing wrong with with liking what you like. I've got uh incubator and burrow 20s and okay. Uh I've loved them, but at the, and that my girlfriend has the exact same quilts, different colors, her slightly different fabric choices and then she's got an ounce of overstuff in both of hers. Um and I need to get a, a more summer setup. I need to get a set of forty degree quilts because I'm using twenties when it's you know fifty degrees outside. It just makes you yeah get it save some weight. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know I was kind of leaning towards maybe if I'm going to go with a forty degree set, I was kind of leaning towards maybe one of the hammock hammock um, gear Phoenix. The econ okay yeah the three quarter yeah three quarter length just to, you know if I'm going to go with forties you know I'm I'm going to go as light as I possibly can. And so I was thinking maybe going with like a three quarter length, but I'm, you know, I'm, I am interested in, you know, looking at other brands and, and probably trying some other stuff. Um, you know, that's been one of the really things that's been yeah, that's, fun and unique about hammocking is it's just, there's so many options, uh, of, and nobody's going to show up with the same setup. I mean, there's so many different right. little variables that you can tweak. Yeah, I think I got into underground quilts because uh, they they're offered through the Dream Hammock website. Like, I think they kind of have a uh, 
a pretty like a combination of a relationship. So I just, I, I, and I, oh man, I've had tarps from them. I had a Winter Dream tarp from Underground Quilts, but then I, I also use a DCF tarp from Hammock Gear. So it's like, I just kind of stick with those two vendors for uh, for my other stuff with sure. Hammock Camping. Sure. Now, have you screwed around with any of the, the Dyneema Cuban Fiber stuff yet? Yeah. So like I said, I have a, a DCF, a Dyneema Composite oh, uh, tarp do. from Hammock Gear. That's my cool. Hammock uh, tarp that I use, which is, I think it's, a little less than 10 ounces with all the lines and everything on it. And does yours have cool. doors or no? It does. Yeah, it it's does. 12 feet okay. long. It's got doors. For the couple ounces of uh, weight penalty for the doors, you just get a little bit more protection. Oh, yeah. I've got uh, and I, I've got two uh, Superflies from Warbonnet with doors. And they, I would not, you know, even for the weight savings, there's no way I'd get a, a tarp without doors now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's only a couple ounces. And, you know, they just offer you a ton more protection because you're actually able to blocking the sides from rain or wind or whatever else you're going to be confronted with. Yeah. That was the big thing. For I haven't me. really it just put it gives you the... so much more versatility with the, the way you can hang and not get so super worried about wind. Um, that was a big thing for me was that, you know, I don't have to find one where the side's going to be, you know, hammering into the wind. I can set up either direction and I'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Just it's like a set it and forget it kind of thing. You know, you're going to be protected from every angle. So yeah. you don't have to worry about like certain, you know, where the wind's coming from and every like everything like that. For sure. And I think also, at least for me, you know, I, I will say that I went on a couple of hammock camping trips with other people first. And then I finally did one of my first solo trips um, pretty soon after that. And it was kind of a nerve wracking experience for me. I mean, you know, like I said, I'm not a, a huge guy. I'm five, nine, 200 pounds. I've, you know, I've played football in college and stuff. I can kind of hold my own, but there was this moment on my first backpacking trip where I kind of hit this reality of like, I'm out here on my own, whatever comes mm -hmm. man, bear, mountain lion, squirrel, raccoon, it's me against them. And there was this moment where I just kind of had this reality check and was like, oh boy, I'm out here, aren't I? And then I started to kind of get a little bit, you know, uh, what am I doing? And I just went, you know what, man, this is no different than my tent. This is no different. Just put your doors in. You're basically in a tent. Right. Everything's all good. And for some reason, props to Hammock Gear for, for, uh, or for, for Warbonnet for having those doors on their tarps. That gave me this sense of solace, and I got through the night, and everything was great. And from then on, everything's been easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Uh, but those dark, mm -hmm. those those doors that first night made a big difference for me, just in my peace of mind, feeling kind of tucked in and protected. Uh, you know, I know a tent's not going to do, or a, a tarp's not going to do anything for you with an animal, but for some reason, that just made me feel like I was enclosed. Yeah, a little bit of a mental, you know, a little bit of a mental uh, edge from it, from just having that that protection. Yeah, well, and then the funny thing was, is so I was on a, I don't know, like a 12-mile loop overnighter, and I was probably about two or three miles from the end of the trail, and I'm sitting there hanging out, and it's, you know, kind of getting into the later hours of the night, and I'm starting to kind of have a little bit of my, you know, scaredness, and all of a sudden, I just start to hear some voices out in the distance, and a Boy Scout troop comes rolling into camp, and these four scouts that were part of this troop set up a tarp kind of like mine. They set up a sheet mm -hmm. on the ground and then they just put down their sleeping bags and we're sleeping uh -huh. cowboy style on the ground with a tarp over their head, but no protection right. from anything else. <laughs> and these guys were like 10 and I was sitting there going, you know what? Yeah. If they're going to be fine, I'm going to be fine. 
And yeah, well, that's uh, the everyone sends me the meme that that one meme every uh, hey guy with backpacking. Uh, what is it? The, the guy with the backpack on with the hiking poles and shoes. My kid did that trail yesterday with a, uh, you know, a little backpack on. Oh, yeah. My exactly. five year old did it. Yeah. yeah wearing jeans and, and you know, some yeah, yeah, yeah. Shoes. <laughs> yeah, 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 for some sure. Crocs. Yeah. And so, you know, that's always been kind of one of those things that I, I, it took me a really long time where anytime my friends started to get into backpacking, they would, you know, well, I think I'm going to get this tent. I'm going to get this. And I would just push back so hard against, you know, oh no, you got to get a tent, you know, hammock, you got to do this, you got to do that. And unfortunately with hammock camping, there's not a super cheap way to just kind of get into it. Um, you know, I mean, you're right. going to struggle if you're bringing a pad, it's not probably going to be very comfortable versus quilts. And, you know, you're going to drop 500 to a thousand dollars on a borderline starter set. And right. Well, I will say this, there's a big, if you get good gear, there's a pretty good resale market for it. There is. Yeah, absolutely. Under understood a hundred percent on that. Um, and so, so if you want to, if you drop some coin first, you like, I like that, uh, that chameleon and that blackbird that I bought, I ended up re, uh, selling it on backpacking gear on the Facebook pages. Sure. And I got a, a pretty good amount for what I paid for it. Oh yeah. I mean, so I, there are, especially for the people that are out there that are kind of want, yeah, like you said, there's a, there's a huge aftermarket for this stuff. Uh, anything yep. for the most part with my camping gear, if it's been good quality gear, I have not had a hard time getting rid of it. Uh, yeah, I've not yeah. had a hard time getting good value for it when I sell it. Cause there's a ton of people out there that are trying to save a little money and, you know, want to buy something for their kid or want to buy something for the first time. Um, and what, yeah. what's funny is that well, I realized over the last, I don't know, two, three years of trying to push everybody in the direction that I want them to go is that all I'm doing is making them less likely to go out. And what I need to be doing is just going, you know what, get whatever you want. You'll figure right. it out on your process of what you like and what you don't. And I'm going to put that on you. If you want to ask me questions, I'll answer them, but I'm not trying to push anybody into anything anymore. Yeah. I think, well, I think that's part of the journey of, of anything, especially like the backpacking and camping industry, because it, it you, that journey is part of the process. Yeah. If everyone had, everyone should just get the same kit at the end when you see these ultralighters or everyone, and then just start from there. But I think that's what happens is you, the process brings you to where you're eventually going to end up. And that's, that's what makes it enjoyable. That's what makes it fun. You don't feel like anyone's pushing you in one way or another. And then depending on where your comfort level is and the things that you need to get to that point, it's individual. It's like, what's right for me is not right for you. And it's tough to tell someone that, oh, you should get this or you should do that. You just, like you said, kind of stay back and just bring them along. Say, hey, I'm going to go out. Whatever you want to do, come on. Just make sure that they're safe and they'll figure it out. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I used to... Uh, I used to really love the Jetboil Flash uh, cook sets mm -hmm. because they were so easy and, you know, the igniters built in and, you know, it's it's all compact into one thing and, you know, it's kind of heavy, but it was one of those things where it was like for 80, 90 bucks, you could go to REI, you could pick up a full complete cook set and be out on the trail. You can boil water in 90 seconds. And then what I started to realize was, you know, I'm really only cooking like one meal a day. I'm not a big cooked breakfast kind of guy. I'll make a cup of coffee right. in the morning most days while I'm laying in my hammock, if it's cold enough outside. Um, but for the most part, I'm just making dinner. And so the ease of setup and the ease of teardown mm -hmm. became a lot less important as weight 
And I started to realize, you know, for me, at least in the way that I camp and the way that I cook and all the things that I do, uh, that the flash just kind of wasn't a good fit for me anymore. Now I still have it. I still use it on certain trips. It's been really beneficial for us in a couple of different places. Uh, when I was in Yosemite and it dropped down to 26 degrees at night, you know, I had my 20 degree quilts, but it was right on the edge of where I was pretty comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what, being able to lay in your hammock at night and take the hot water bottle. I know you did a video on five ways to add heat to your sleeping system. Uh, you know, hot yep. water bottle being one of them. Um, you know, my hot water bottle over the course of the night had kind of dissipated into fairly room temperature water. And I was able to take my Nalgene bottle and without leaving my hammock, pour that Nalgene bottle into my jet boil flash, push the, the push button igniter, turn the thing fuel reservoir on. And in about two minutes, I had another hot water bottle and poured it all right back into my, my Nalgene, screwed the top on, stuck it back down in my hammock and I was off and running again and borderline too warm. So, uh, that was an incredibly yeah, nice think, feature on that trip. Yeah, that is, I guess that's the pros and cons versus every setup. You're going to get that quick boil time with those setups, but then you're carrying a lot more weight for, you know, what you're doing it for or what yeah. you need it for. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's so everyone's different. Some people, that's what they want. They want that one minute boil time. Um, meanwhile, that I went uh, up to Vermont the other day and I had my little alcohol stove yep. <laughs> that I was bringing my, you know, little bottle of alcohol and everyone else had jet boils and the, uh, you know, pocket rockets and stuff like that. So to each their own, they're all good stuff. I'm bringing yeah. a pocket and rocket deluxe out to the JMT with me. So, oh, are you? Like I know everything, they all have their pros and cons. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I've got alcohol stoves that I really like. I'm kind of on an Esbit stove kick right now, just from the simplicity of it. Um, can you handle the smell of that? <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what it does rock you. Oh, it's uh, brutal. It's it pretty gnarly. I opened up the pack. Yeah. <laughs> I I bought one. I opened up the pack. I go and I put it right back in. And I'm like, I'm never going to use this thing. Yeah. It's, it's pretty aggressive. And unfortunately, so I've got what is the system I'm working with right now? It's an MSR titanium Titan kettle, which is probably about a 700 or 650, 750 pot, but it's kind of shorter and fatter than it is tall. And okay. then nicely nestled right down in there. I've got a titanium windscreen. And then right inside that is a Tokes 550 pot, which serves as a really nice kind of oversized coffee cup. And, mm -hmm. um, then I've got a, a little self-made aluminum vapor barrier. And then I've got, uh, this Vargo titanium Esbit stove, which is like barely nothing. Uh, it's the smallest stove I've ever seen other than maybe a, a, you know, fancy feast cat food can. Um, yeah. and which I got bunches of those too. Uh, and it, I, I'm able to store nine to 10 fuel tabs inside that pot including everything else I carry. So, I mean, it is mm -hmm. the smallest package for 10, 9, 10 boils you can imagine, but you're absolutely right. Every day that I take that lid off, it is like a hammer hitting yeah. your face. <laughs> uh, it is. So, it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy how bad it smells. Yeah, it's pretty pretty gnarly. But so, yeah, like I said, it's, it's that's part of the, uh, not the Esbeth stoves, but just in general, this whole DIY kind of, you know, that's why I like the, alcohol stoves it gives you something to fiddle around with at your house yeah. when you're away from the woods so you still get a feeling like you're like you're connected to that type of environment you know what's funny is that uh i i had a guy on the podcast that talked primarily about fishing this guy brad who's one of my friends and 
I asked him, you know, I said, most camping people that I know kind of fall into two categories. It's one group of people that love their gear and they think about their gear all mm -hmm. the time and they're fiddling with it constantly. And there's this other group of people that just don't give a shit about gear. It's just the farthest thing from their mind. My buddy Jason is like that. He can literally show up the morning of a camping trip with, you know, a 20 liter backpack with some water and a beef jerky in it and feel oh, completely yeah. as confident as I do with, you know, 20 pounds of gear in my yes. back and, and having spent six months thinking about this trip. And yeah, that is, that is me and my friends because I'm, I'm that OCD, everything's planned out. Every piece is accounted for. And then my other friends are like, they just threw everything in a bag the morning of and met me at the same, <laughs> the same trailhead. So yeah. I, I and, feel and you. Who's I feel to say who had more fun, you know what I mean? Um, and that's yeah. that's the kind of the beautiful thing and that's what i love about backpacking is that it evolves from trip to trip and you know what was right on the last trip is going to be completely different on the next trip and you know you're going to be using stuff from one trip to another and then ditching it and you know coming back to it six months later or maybe never again and it's very personal and everybody does it differently and you know it was really funny when sarah and i were out in colorado uh last time we went out we've been there a couple of times together now and the last time we went out was more of a kind of a day trip. We went to Aspen or we went to Vail and Breckenridge. And we were just kind of cruising around in a car. And we did a little bit of campsite camping just to kind of save money on hotel rooms and stuff like that. And we took my friend's Jeep. We took, I mean, a pop-up, you know, pop-up cover type thing, you know, 10 by 10, kind of uh, one of those little mini pavilion things. We took a big tent air mattresses we took all these you know coleman camping stove and pots and pans and this whole stuff and we go to this campsite just outside of breckenridge beautiful place in frisco colorado and there's this setup at the campsite we were at which was you there was about six cars that parked all next to each other and you'd walked about i don't know 50 yards to your campsites and so with all the gear we had we're making trip after trip after trip back and forth to the car carrying all this heavy stuff and mm -hmm. while we're doing that, this guy pulls up and he's got one of those like almost bivy style tents. That's just like a single man. You slide into them from the front. They're super low profile. And yep. he was driving a BMW Z3, the smallest little convertible BMWs ever made. And he's got on a pair of flip flops and he had a, he's sitting at the picnic table up by his tent and he's got a cold can of chili that he's eaten out of with a spoon and he's got a paperback right. book. <laughs> And he's just sitting there at this camping table, you know, at this picnic table, and he's just eating his chili and he's reading his book and he's got his little tiny tent there. And I was like, man, that looks pretty easy. And he was like, right, yeah, right, man, right. you're spending a lot of time carrying stuff and setting stuff right. up. And what you're out here to do is to go sit by that lake and stare at the sunset. And it was one of those moments where I was like, ah, I might be doing it wrong. <laughs> And, yeah, it's, you know, it's so weird. It is. It, I guess everyone needs to feel that level of comfort or that level of whatever it is. I mean, like maybe his thing isn't the gear. Maybe your thing is like that's part of the draw and the mystique of why you yeah. enjoy doing the, uh, you know, that. And I don't think one is better than the other. It's just Agreed. what what gives you enjoyment from it. You know, I enjoy. So my friend Chris and I, he's coming out to do the JMT. He's going to do two weeks with me. And we were driving back from Vermont. And. Like I said, I, I have everything planned out. I got uh, topographical maps and I've been online at different websites and I'm, pr I'm printing out everything and blah and all this. And he's literally the type of person that's like, nah, it's just, you know, I'm going to figure it out and it's not that big of a deal and this and that. And I'm like, don't do you enjoy the logistical part of it, like the planning? And he's like, not at all. 
Yeah. Like he, he's like, that doesn't, it doesn't interest me one bit. And on the other side, I said, well, that's part of the, like, I do enjoy it. I do enjoy uh, the planning aspect of it and seeing where I'm going to be and knowing that the lake is right over there and the mountain range is going to be over here. So like I said, it doesn't make it better or worse. It's just where you find that enjoyment from the, uh, the experience. Yeah. And I mean, everybody um, does the, even the hiking part differently. I mean, I, I carry a Garmin Phoenix three watch, uh, pretty religiously. And I, I am one of the first people to admit I'm terrible at navigation and I do not have mm -hmm. a good sense of, of direction, even in the city driving around, I get lost all the time. And, uh, when we're out on the trail, my girlfriend who is, is a great little hiker, she's really good at backpacking and she's a lot of fun to go with. Um, very, very lucky that my significant other enjoys, you know, one of the hobbies that I really enjoy. But what I've realized is that we look at trails and trips very, very differently. Um, right. and one of the things just in walking the trail, she does not want to know how much further it is. She does not want to mm -hmm. know how much elevation is left. And I really want to know because in my mentality, I can suffer through anything if I know right. it's coming. If it's just mindless climbing forever, I struggle with that. But if I know like, all right, right dude, right, you got right. 2000 feet, strap in, it's going to suck. Go for it. Then I'm fine. And I yeah, can just I'm, sit there and I'm go, the all right, 600 yeah. feet left, 500 feet left, 400 feet. I way. just pound away. But she's completely differently, different, completely different. Are you the same as me? So if I said there's a mile left or there's two miles left, as you're moving along, you're like, this has got to be a mile. It's got to be two miles. I've been going for like it feel that one mile feels like forever when you're oh, yeah. at the last leg of your trip. Always. I don't know why. I don't know who's making the mileage in these places, but that last mile seems like it takes forever. It always does. And you know, that, that extra, that last hundred feet of elevation always seems like it's 250. Um, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, again, a lot of times I'm going off of somebody else's GPS track that I downloaded offline. It could be a 10 year old GPS unit that wasn't very good. They might've walked a slightly different path than I did. Um, you know, so I'm right, always, right, right. I'm, I always allow for a 10% or so margin of error on those kinds of things where I'm like, you know what? It says I'm about back to the car, but I'm not going to trust it just yet until I see something right. that I recognize. Uh, so I don't try and get my spirits up too high, but having that little bit of information for me just to know I'm on the right path. I know how far I've got to go. I can kind of pace it. I know where I'm going to be when it, when I get to camp. Um, you know, I, I know I'm not going to be setting up in the dark or I am things like that. Uh, have always made me a lot more comfortable out on the trail, but you know, everybody's different. Like we've said with gear, with the, the approach to the, the trip, the, the information they want to know, how they handle elevation, all that kind of stuff is drastically different. Yep. Yep. And, and it, but I it's mean, all I even good. Saw Everyone's it outside on... and it's, it's just a really, just worth it just to get outside. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Any way and you then, do it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's been one of the fun things over the last, like I said, two years or so and kind of getting to know myself and my friends a little bit better and just realizing like everybody's going to have their own trip. They're going to handle it their own way. I don't have to necessarily push my way upon them. I can just let them handle it themselves. They're grown people. They'll figure it out. Uh, if they're miserable, they'll tell me, you know what I mean? And I can make adjustments mm -hmm. or whatever it may be. So kind of back to the JMT, what kind of stuff on this trail are you most looking forward to? What, what is it about this particular trip that you really wanted to do? and has kept you applying for it and you know of the the different legs and the different passes and things what stuff are you looking forward to the most yeah i i think that um 
I think the biggest draw to it is just the time frame of it because like I said, I have I have a wife, I have kids, I have a family, I have a job that to try and peace out for six months is just not in the cards for me uh, anytime soon. Sure. So the the JMT or these other shorter through hikes, uh, that's I think why I kept applying to it because I'm like, well, you know, I could, I'd probably get away for like three weeks to try and get this done. And if it does, if the, I do get my permit accepted, then I could talk to the missus and see what her viewpoint is about it. So um, I think that's the first draw that it was something that I think I could kind of figure out logistically how to get it done. And sure enough, I was able to to figure out how to get the time off of work. Um, my wife and I talked about it and she was cool with it. And, you know, so that's the first thing that I enjoyed. The fact that is I can get a little bit of a taste of what a through hike is like. And out there, just the views and the difference in terrain and the lakes. And it's just it's just an amazing, an amazing area. And I've never been out there before. So it's like alien to me. Yeah, that'll be coming really, really from, fun. Uh, coming that's, from the East Coast. That's going to be a wild visual experience for you. Uh, I will yeah. I'll just tell you, so as a guy from the Midwest, <laughs> who's even probably more extreme. I mean, I don't have the White Mountains and I don't have a lot of the the stuff that you guys do up there. Um, right. It is a pretty mind-blowing visual experience. Yeah, I can only imagine. And I've done I've done a lot of hiking around the Northeast between the Whites and the Green Mountains and the Adirondacks. So I've seen a lot of what the Northeast has to offer, and it's beautiful, and I love it. Uh, I just think that going out West is going to be a different experience that's going to have its own level of awe factor, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting the chances to, to experience this. Yeah. So I know that you've made some, some, you know, kind of significant changes, obviously over the last few years, you've been primarily hammock camping and we've had that kind of conversation offline about why that doesn't really make sense, uh, or it, it becomes a challenge on the JMT. So what kind of gear adjustments have you made to kind of your base setup that you are going to be using when you go? Uh, so I'm still going to bring the hammock with me on this trip. Oh, cool. <laughs> That's going to be my luxury item. Yep. Good for you. I know it's good. I, I wrestled with it, but, uh, I'm like, it's only, a, it's, I think my Darien with the straps, I'm bringing, uh, Dyneema straps, those venom webbing straps. I think the total setup is like 19.5 ounces or something like that between totally the hammock doable. and those straps. So that's it. It's a 20 ounce penalty to hope. So what my plan is I ended up getting a tent. My father helped me out with a couple pieces of gear. So we got a, uh, Z-Packs duplex. That and it's seems something like that, the best you know, tent on the he market. can use, I can use, the kids can use, so it's not going to go to waste. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, depending on, you know, what you're, for a two-person setup, uh, it uses trekking poles. So if you use trekking poles, it does have a freestanding option that they do sell poles for it. But oh. I think the whole tent itself weighs, oh, man, it's like 20 ounces or something crazy like that. Um, so yeah, so it's just, it's a phenomenal piece of gear and the last, I've used it, I think I slept outside maybe like four times in it. Yeah. It sets up really easy. It's got a lot of protection. One thing that I have to worry about though, being so tall is it's a single wall tent. Sure. So if you do have the doors closed in, there can be condensation buildup on the inside, which will run down the peak of the roof and out. Uh, there's like a little piece of, uh, no see mesh on the bottom that lines it. Yeah. So I just have to make sure that my feet are kind of away from that area and that the sleeping bag's not uh, not hitting it at all. Pressed up against it. Um, yeah. So I sleep kind of like at an angle from one corner to the other. Yeah, that makes right, sense. Right, right, right. Uh, but like I said, I haven't had an issue with it so far. And 
because I'm aware of it, I know that that's, that's something that I have to uh, to guard against. But for the weight savings, for the space of it, it's just a phenomenal tent. Um, I got a new backpack, so that was another oh, really? purchase. Yeah, so like you, I have a ULA Ohm, and that was my primary pack of choice for the last couple of years. Um, the thing with the JMT is that I have to bring a bear canister. Yeah. So that was, you know, to try and with my whole setup and the, the things that I'm going to bring out there, I actually can get it all into the ohm and I did experiment with, with it, but where the bear can sits, it's not, it's not really a comfortable carry, at least for me. Did you put yours on top? You can do that. And I've seen a couple different techniques, but now you're going to go top heavy and it's a little bit of a, uh, of an awkward carry. So I thought about maybe doing that. Yeah. I've seen another technique where people will actually empty out their bear can, keep their food inside of their backpack while they're hiking in like one of those uh, orderproof sacks, strap the can to their top. And then when they get to camp, they just put everything back into the, uh, into the can. So I thought about doing that option also. Um, but I roll, I thought about a couple different things. Um, I want to get another pack. So I looked at the ULA circuits, but what I ended up finally going with is I got a Z packs R call because oh, awesome. the space that you get off, right. The space that you get on the R call is around 62 liters. The circuits around 69 and, but there's like a, oh man, I think like a 12 pound weight difference between the circuit and the, uh, the arc hall at the, at the, uh, lighter end. So yeah, I'm trying to get a bunch of gear that try and gets me as light as possible for the whole trek. So that's the pack that I'm going to probably be rolling with is the arc hall. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm really attracted to those Z packs packs about is that I'm, I'm a guy that, um, you know, I don't know where I have hyperhidrosis or what's going on, but I, if I get hot, I sweat a lot. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I have a tendency, I really like, uh, wool backpacking shirts by icebreaker. I get some of the, the heat gear ones, but no matter what, you're going to get hot. And so, uh, even in synthetic shirts, things like right. that, the ohm being pressed completely flat up against my back, you just can't get away from the fact that when I get to camp, I don't care how cold it is. I don't care if I'm wearing a, you know, a damn near a down jacket while I'm hiking. My back is pretty much just drenched every time I get there. And, uh, you know, I'm not the kind of, yeah, I don't, I don't stop and take nearly enough breaks. I just kind of pound through miles. Um, I wish I was a little bit more, you know, free flowing and just, Hey, everything's cool. No worries. It's all good. Uh, but unfortunately it's just kind of not how I roll. And so I'm really looking at packs that have, you know, that arc, that, that separation between the frame and the suspension and the actual pack itself that I think would create a little bit more airflow which would probably help, which is where I think the Z packs are really interesting. Yeah. They have that, um, that, uh, mesh back panel that it's the arc frame that pulls the pack away from you a little bit. Yeah. So I, yeah, I did notice that that's a really nice feature of it. Nice. And how, how has that worked for you so far? It's worked out good. I've all, I've used it on a couple day hikes and like a, this one backpacking trip that I just went on. So I'm still fine tuning it because there's a bunch of different straps on it that you want to make sure that the whole pack is balanced. So as far as the carry, the carry is fine. I'm just trying to fine tune those, uh, those different setups because like the arc is supposed to be set at a certain curvature. Um, so like all that stuff, I could set it and say, okay, this feels good. But then the next time, if I do it a little bit differently, I just want to play with it for the next like week and a half until I actually leave and see which one works out the best. Yeah. And is the arc hall, uh, a Dyneema pack or is that made out of something different? 
Yeah, so the Arc Blast is the one made out of the Dyneema material. Gotcha. Uh, this is made out of like a, a grid stop. Gotcha. They claim it's gotcha. water repellent, not waterproof. Um, so I still line my pack, but it's uh, I don't think it has the same water repellency that the Arc, uh, the Arc Blast does, that DCF material. Gotcha. Yeah, that was one of the things that I, I found really kind of attractive about the Arc Blast was that you really didn't need you know, any kind of extra, you know, pack liner per se, or, um, you know, I, yeah. I kind of always double up on everything. I'm always worried about, you know, I'd, I'd much rather carry an extra ounce or two for an extra, you know, Dyneema pack liner or, so, or a, a, you know, Dutch, um, Dutch gear pack cover, which I absolutely love that pack right, cover. Right, if you right. don't have one, they're fantastic. Um, I'm always willing to carry an extra couple of ounces to keep my, my gear dry. Yeah. The, uh, so my, my father, no, I was going to say that my father has an arc blast. So I was originally debating on just asking him if I could use that. Um, but when I started, because I, so along the same lines on what my gear selection was, I was originally planning on using a sleeping bag, not a quilt. I'm, uh -huh. I'm going with the quilt now, but my original plan was to use a sleeping bag. And when I uh, weighed out the different options and this, that, and blah, 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 and the amount of storage that it takes up inside of your pack, the blast was not going to be an option for how I, I was going to configure my pack. So I ended up, I've been comfortable with quit. For some reason, when I, when I thought that I had to go to the ground, I'm like, okay, well, I'm on the ground again. I should probably just get a sleeping bag and be comfortable that way. Uh, so I kind of shied away from the quilts because I've used them on the ground. And I don't know whether like my midsection is <laughs> wider than most people, <laughs> but the quilt that I had just did not cover me when I was rolling. Gotcha. Um, and I had an underground quilt bandit, uh, but I had it a tapered version. So it started wide at your, at the top part and then narrowly went down to the foot box. Um, so what I did was I actually sold that to a friend of mine in the area and I called Paul up at over at uh, underground quilts and they have a no taper version. So it, it keeps the same width the whole way down until the foot box gets sewn. So now that I have that, I have a lot more protection over my midsection so that when I do roll around, I'm not feeling any of those gaps that I did when I had the other quilt. Um, yeah, so I went with, uh, like I said, that underground quilt bandit is going to be the quilt that I'm going with. And it takes up a lot less space in the overall pack setup. Uh, so it's kind of like everything kind of gets pieced together. And I think that's how these companies make their gear is they're not looking for you to throw in like this really huge sleeping bag with a really big tent. They're saying, okay, if you're minimalist by design you should have this piece of a, this piece, this quilt and this uh 10 and you should have this amount of clothing and then they make the volume of that pack kind of fit that uh that size yeah, they're, they're kind of a, a, operating under the expectations that if you're going for that kind of pack you're also going to have the accompanying equipment that fits right right right, right exactly exactly so that's why when i dialed in my kit and got everything and they, they tell you to do that get get all your pieces out first lay them out and then see what size pack you need to uh to fit the gear that you're going to be carrying for sure and i can get everything in the arc hall with the bear can and, and it carries well so i'm really really happy with uh, with this piece of that's gear. awesome that's awesome and when it comes to footwear what are you doing for the strip i'm wearing solomon x ultra 3 trail runners cool and, and yeah. how long have you been on the trail runner kick uh for a couple years and i love solomon boots so I've stayed with, I had a pair of speed cross. I've been wearing speed crosses, which is, so there's three different types of trail runners that Solomon offers. 
There's uh, the Speed Cross is like their most minimal design. That's almost like a sneaker design. Then the middle ground is the, I think it's called the XA Pro is their like middle of the road trail runner. And then the one that I have is the X Ultra 3, which has a little bit of a burlier sole on it. Gotcha. Because I noticed, so wearing the speed crosses, the traction on that is like, it's like being on ice. Oh, really? It's crazy how slippery they are on, on wet rocks. So I kind of shied away from them a couple of years ago. And I was, because I do so much hiking in the Northeast, like I wanted something a little bit with a, with a thicker sole because I was, we have so many rocks and roots around this area that I want a little bit more protection on my foot on the bottom. And the, the X Ultra threes are, they're a really nice balance between a lighter weight setup from wearing a boot, but still a lot of protection on your foot. So you're not really getting that, uh, those little pains and those sharp rocks on your, on your foot. Yeah. I've, uh, non, I, I non wore... Gore-Tex also. Oh yeah. That's big. Yeah. I, I've worn Solomon, the, um, Oh God, what are they? The GTX four quads or whatever they are. The, the, you know, two hundred yeah, thirty whatever dollar yeah, the, Solomon boots. Yeah. yeah the, the big quest GTXs. The big ones, yep. and they are kind of heavy, and uh, they're really good for support. They've got great mm -hmm. waterproofing. Uh, it's a Gore-Tex boot with a Vibram sole, and I've had basically no problems with them up until recently. I started to have a little bit of the outsole separate from the midsole, use a little bit of shoe goo, fix that right up, right back to where they needed to be. Uh, and then just recently, I did about a 30-mile two-day trip, which was kind of most mileage I'd done in two days. And it wasn't aggressive terrain. It wasn't anything, you know, crazy. But I'll tell you what, by the time I finished that trail, my feet were toast. And it kind of really made me start rethinking what I was going to do with my footwear. I've got the Solomon um, XD3 or X Pro 3Ds, uh, which is their Gore-Tex kind of uh, pull lace system, which doesn't have, you know, actual normal laces, just right. kind of one cinch cord and it's a, a you know a shorter uh gore-tex boot it's still fully waterproof but it's you know ankle height um still got a really solid sole they're a little right. heavier than i wanted and then i started doing a little bit more running just in kind of preparation for backpacking season i want to lose a little weight i've you know i've been an athlete most of my life so i want to get back into shape and uh i started running and i started to have a lot of foot problems where i was getting numbness in my toes and i was starting to have problems so i looked into a pair of hokas i got some of the clifton fives those didn't alleviate any problems. Mm -hmm. That was kind of at the recommendation of the shill guys. I know they do a lot of running. And then all of a sudden I ended up with some ultras, uh, just kind of on a whim. And I'll tell you what, man, those, I, I wouldn't go into the kind of journey that you're about to do on something like that, because I think the soles, like you said, are just a little too right. flimsy for a lot of the rock scrambling and some of the stuff that you're going to be doing. Um, but man, have they been really comfortable as just running around town, going running. I, I do them on, you know, trails and stuff like that around here. Uh, and I really liked them. I don't think I'd take any big, giant, long trips, but I ended up getting, they've got a boot right. in that same style that's lone, waterproof. Would you get the, okay, yeah. The Lone Peak 4 Are they boot. zero drops, or do they have a little? That's yeah, it's got. got the zero drop heel on it. How was that? Were you able to to adapt to that? Was it a little bit different feel? Like, how do you feel the difference between what you would normally wear? Well, so it's definitely a different feel when you're running because it is very much pushing you more towards the front of the foot. I mean, it's, it's going to punish you for being heel heavy. Um, mm -hmm. and it doesn't hurt or anything like that, but you definitely naturally adjust your stride to be a little bit right. more ball striking. 
you know, hitting the front of your foot and, okay. and kind of being up there. I haven't worn the boots on a long enough trail to really get a good feeling for them yet because it's just been so damn hot in St. Louis. It just pretty much nullifies right, my whole right, summer right. season. Um, you know, I'm hoping as we get more out to the Northwest, which is where my girlfriend and I plan on moving over the course of the next year, that we'll have a lot more season uh, to our backpacking year. Uh, cause here it just, I mean, once around June hits, you're just done and it's probably more like May. Yeah. It's too hot. Just too hot. So I've been kind mm -hmm. of, I'm curious what people are doing, especially on these longer trails, because I know, you know, I've seen my feet fall apart, uh, after, you know, 15, 20, 30 miles and, uh, start to get blisters right. and hot spots and things like that. So I'm always curious how people are preparing for that and, you know, what kind of shoes they've found that work for them. So I'm just always asking people. Well, knock on wood, you know, I haven't really had any blister problems. Um, I have a narrow foot, so the Solomons are cut narrow. Now, whether that's that's why I, enjoy, I like them or whatever, uh, I found that they're comfortable for my sure. foot. So I just instead of trying to experiment with anything new, I'm just I kept in that brand and just stayed with Solomon because I had uh, I had the speed crosses and I liked those, but like I said, I needed something with a little bit better traction. And then I think I got the X Ultra 3 mids was uh, the first. I ended up going with a, a mid at first, and then I got the trail runners a couple of years oh, ago. Cool. So, yeah, I've, uh, I don't know, for some reason, like you just kind of think that you need that ankle support. But the more that I've worn the trail runners, they provide more than enough support and they give you a, a lot of traction. So I've been really happy with yeah, that. Yeah. And just, I mean, the, the, I, you know, the old adage of, you know, for every pound on your foot is 10 pounds on your back, um, is in mm -hmm. my experience, very accurate. I mean, the lighter the shoe that I can get, as long as I feel like it still has adequate support, the better off I typically feel. Right. Right. Gotcha. Right. So and what like other, said, if, you're, if your gears, Go ahead. I was going to say, if your gears dialed in, then trail run. No, I was going to say, if your gears dialed in, then trail runners seem to be the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think once you're down, once your base weight's down into the kind of the mid to light, you know, mid to upper teens, uh, even into the twenties, yep. it's, it's very approachable. Um, you know, it's only when yep. you're carrying 30, 40, 50 pounds that it just gets uh, thinking back to my first Gregory Baltoro backpack, which was like 5.8 pounds without a piece of gear in it. And then, you know, adding all of the mm -hmm. stuff, the big tent and everything else that I had, I mean, my base weight had to be in the mid thirties. Yeah, I, I swear that you and I were on the same journey because every piece of gear that you mentioned is something that I've had in the past that I literally went to REI. I picked out yep. each individual piece and said, okay, I got my system, my system ready. And then from there, you're like, oh, wait, well, that backpack's this weight, this one's this, and there's a three pound weight difference. Well, why, why don't I just And on this top one? of that. And, the, and then you do that to every piece of gear and now you're 10, 15 pounds lighter and you got the same same amount oh, of stuff. Oh yeah, and I mean, you know, you're also going to find that, you know, you're probably going to shave some of the clothes that you were carrying that you thought you needed an extra one of these or two extra of those. Right. Um, but you know, one of the other things that was kind of a, a shock to me, I think my first Ball Toro was like $370 or something like that. It was a pretty expensive backpack. Oh yeah, the price. And then the yep. ULA Ohms mm -hmm. like 200 bucks. And so any of my friends that are getting into it, I'm like, "Guys, you know, go buy this 2-pound backpack that's $200. It's a really, really good place to start. And you're going to yep. save some money. But I think a lot of people get intimidated by buying a backpack that they've never tried on before, which is probably one of the yeah, challenges. Well, and that's the thing with the marketing is you're paying a premium for that name. And 
that's how they were able to generate that that amount of money. But your, the quality of the ULA own or the ULA in general is just a great backpack. Yeah. So for the amount of money that it costs uh, to the product that you're getting, it's just it's a it's like a win win situation. Yeah. And then I think there's also like you said, I mean, you're going to evolve your gear. I you know I I tried to go crazy, crazy light a while ago. And I was carrying Vargo titanium shepherd hook stakes. And I just realized in, you know, a lot of the hard bedrock ground that we've got here in Missouri, it just, you end up bending stakes left and right. So I went back up to my MSR groundhogs and just, you know, it's a, like you've said, it's a very kind of evolving process. Um, yeah. Is there any kind of other major gear considerations that you've made for this trip outside of kind of your footwear, your backpack and, and your sleep system? Or is there anything else specifically that you're, that you've made adjustments to? Um, let me, I have my, I have a lighter pack list of all my stuff. So let me take a look. Like I said, so I, I primarily use an alcohol stove, but like I said, I'm going to bring that pocket rocket deluxe. Uh, it's a new stove that they offer. I think the pocket rocket two is MSR's claim to fame stove. Like that's got a pretty good, pretty yeah. good reviews, but backpacking light just did this whole review on a bunch of different stoves that are on the market. And the back, the, uh, pocket rocket deluxe got really, really high reviews. And so I, I don't know exactly how the system works with how the fuel comes out of the canister, but the pocket rocket deluxe is able to, it's a consistent flow. Oh, nice. So you're not going to get those types of, um, like the elevation doesn't play as much of a role into affecting the stove's performance as some of the other stoves on the yeah. market. So that's, a, that's another good feature because I'm going to be up around, you know, 10,000, 12,000, 13,000 feet with some of the passes that I'm going to be on. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any specific passes or legs of the journey that you're most excited about? Um, I want to see Muir Hut. That's over Muir Pass. There's a, a hut that's right on the top of that pass. Um, Forrester, you know, the, all the passes have their own little draw to them. My biggest concern is that they're all going to be snow covered by probably by the time that I get there. So I'm just hoping that this melt keeps coming because I'm dealing, I'm, that's one of the things that I'm concerned about is how much snow I'm going to be up to walk over. Yeah. Have you seen a mile, mile and a half? I'm guessing. I have. <laughs> that's my, I mean, that's my barometer for everything that I, uh, that I look at. <laughs> I, I cannot stop yeah, watching they, that, that documentary. I've probably watched that 10 times. It is absolutely beautifully shot. Yeah, they they went in 2011, which... Um, so right now, 2019, before May, we were trekking around the 2011 wow. season. So Mile, Mile and a Half was filmed in 2011, and I'm leaving a week after that crew went out and filmed that, that uh, documentary. Wild. So seeing what they encountered and stuff like that, I'm like, oh, this is a really good, uh, you know, picture of what I'm going to have. Yeah. But the Sierra had a, they had a late snowstorm come through where it dumped a couple more feet. So now 2017 is more along the same lines about what I'm going to have to deal with, which is, it's not really like that big a, a drastic difference, but there are just a couple, like the amount of, of melt that's happening, how much more snow is going to be on the ground when I, when I leave. Uh, just a little bit more stuff to to have to worry yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I will say though that the fact that you're taller, the fact that you you know you're you're a bigger dude, I'm sure is going to play in your favor uh, in some of those stream crossings and things. Because I remember in that documentary, I mean, you see some of those those smaller ladies. Uh, you know, if you're if you're walking yeah. waist deep, it's a whole different thing than if you're walking you know knee to mid thigh. Oh yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. That, that, like I said, that's a concern, the stream crossings. Um, but like I said, my body stature does have a little bit of a, I have an advantage yeah. with that. Now, when you get to a stream crossing, are you the kind of guy that ditches the shoes and puts on different shoes, or do you just walk straight through it? Yeah, no, because I, so I'm going to bring like a, uh, a shower sandal, one of those, you know, the web toe, web yeah. toe ones that just go over the top of your foot just for camp. But I'm planning on just walking through with my trail runner. Gotcha. On. If if I if I notice that it's not too bad, or if I want to take them off, then I might just remove the insole on my sock, put the trail runner back on, and then go through like that. Um, but we'll we'll weigh each option as it comes. But that's I'm not planning on bringing a separate uh, water. Yeah, shoe. I'll tell you what I've I've long been a strong advocate of waterproof shoes, and I'm moving more and more away from them uh as time goes on and it's kind of funny because you know as we've said everybody evolves through their gear and for a long time i've seen a lot of the people that i follow the show brothers and frozen and even syntax in certain situations are all trail runner guys they'll just walk right through the water and i sit there and go god there's just absolutely no way i'd be comfortable walking with wet shoes all day yeah and well i will i, I, I will tell you this if you're a weekend warrior, or if you're just going out for one or two days, I think that Gore-Tex does have its place because to wake up in the morning and you hit that morning dew and your Gore-Tex is protecting you. And then, you know, you go up a couple like little stream crossings, but your feet can protect you. It's getting protected. It's definitely beneficial in my opinion, because you're not going to be out there for an extended period of time. Yep. With what, what all these other guys are dealing with is their they're out in the field for such an extended period of time that their shoes don't have a chance to recover. Yeah. So now they're trying to dry them out and they can't dry out. So now, you know, that that's leading into all, uh, you know, more problems. So I think it's situational awareness of what you get. Right, right, right. So yeah, like I said, I, I have, um, Gore-Tex shoes. And if I know that I'm going out for like an overnight, I might throw those things on. Cause I know they're going to, at least keep my feet dry for that morning do that I'm going to be going through. Like why I, you know, I could wear the non Gore-Tex, but that's, I don't have to worry about them wetting out because I'll be off the trail in a day or day and a half. And as far as technology kind of stuff, what are you bringing to film slash photograph this experience? Um, yeah. So you mentioned it before. I do have a YouTube channel. Uh, my YouTube is triple nickel outdoors. Um, I have an Instagram with the same name also. Great channel for any of you that haven't seen it before. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's it's all right. I wish I had more time to dedicate to it, but I enjoy talking about this stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna film it and I'm not gonna bring anything fancy, but I did upgrade my phone. I got a iPhone X XS Max, um, the newest model that they had. Cool. And the camera on it is really, really good. So I think I'm just gonna roll with that. Um, I upgraded the storage on it, so I'll be I'll have enough storage to be able to handle whatever I'm gonna film out there. Um what yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, I was debating on, I have a GoPro, the uh, Hero Black 5, I think is the model mm -hmm. that I have. I was debating on bringing that too, but I'm, I, I really wish I had more of an understanding on filming and videography and all that stuff because I see some of these pictures. Do you follow um, the, uh, what's his name? Saved by Mountains, uh, UBTAT. Don't think so. Or IBTAT, I'm sorry. IBTAT, yeah, he's doing the PCT right now. And his pictures are insane. He's, he's such like a, a great uh, picture taker, ph photographer. It's amazing. Yeah. So I wish that I had that kind of skill, but, um, you know, I don't. So I'm just willing to just film what I got and 
hopefully that it comes across on uh, on camera as good as I hope it does. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I've been kind of fortunate and lucky enough is that part of my marketing consulting firm, freelance, whatever you want to call it, um, is I, I do a decent amount of photography and video production for companies and things. So I've got a Sony a6500 with some decent lenses. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a 4k camera and can shoot, you know, I have 30 something megapixel uh, photos. And it's got really good depth of field. So you can get some of those really beautiful blurry backgrounds and some of that good bokeh. But, you know, we can also get these really kind of beautiful landscapes like we did out at Yosemite, where you have these giant vistas um, and understanding right. how to use the camera and use your settings and stuff. You can get some really stunning shots. But I'll tell you what, I've also seen a lot of people that are doing that stuff with iPhones and with Samsungs and producing some really stunning photography, too. So, yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I think you're going to you're going to be capturing the the camera is not going to make or break the quality of your imagery where you're going to be is going to be so overwhelming that it's going to be great. Yeah, no, I really I, I see some of these pictures. And I'm just I'm like going to be in awe when I'm every every view is going to be a picturesque moment. So, I mean, I don't I wish they made a camera that can capture what your eyes see. That would be the next uh, technological advance. That is the next iteration. Yeah. I mean, your, uh, your struggle is probably going to be keeping up with mileage because there's going to be so many places you're just going to want to stop and, and just stare. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, so when I made my itinerary, I really didn't, I decided to add a couple more days onto it so that I could, I didn't feel like I was in a rush. And I think I'm doing roughly like 13 miles a day. You know, some days are a little bit less, some days are a little bit more. I have one full zero day planned in there because I'm meeting some friends on my seventh day. And then, oh, great. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have uh, four guys from my job coming out on my seventh day. They're going to do four days with me. I have another one of my friends coming out on my eighth day. He's going to do two weeks with me. And then two other guys are coming at the back end and we're going to do Mount Whitney together for four days. Oh, that's awesome. So how much of the total trip are you going to be on your own? Uh, like a week. Oh, that's not bad at all. Yeah, yeah. I start alone in Yosemite. And once I come out from Yosemite, I think one day later, then my uh, my friends are meeting me out there. I'm, I'm so jealous. I'm so pumped. Uh, I, I just cannot wait to see what kind of footage you get and to revisit this conversation at the tail end of your trip, because I think it's going to be really fun to kind of go back and hear the stories of not only what you and your friends got to do, but also kind of what the experience was on those solo days and what your challenges were and, and what some of the great you know, uh, kind of overcoming stories where I think that's going to be a really fun follow-up for everybody. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. And I'm looking, that's a nice, I think it's a good balance between me getting a little bit of an experience to feel like what it is by myself for that extended period of time. Um, but still having some people from back home come out and getting a chance to share it with people that I know. And I think you're also going to have a really good opportunity to meet some really fun people out on the trail. I mean, that's one of the things that I was probably most jealous um or or most envious of frozen and his experience on the pacific you know or on the on the at uh was just the fact that you can see this bond that he was able to create with the people that he hiked with or his you know tramily as he calls right it. right um you know those are people that he's gonna be friends with for the rest of his life he's gonna go meet up with those people no matter where they're from and do other trips i'm sure over the course of the next 25 30 years and i mean just looking at that guy uh, I know he only was out there for, you know, six months or so, or even shorter period in time than that. 
he looks like a different man. Yeah. Um, I mean, that he looks like a m- more mature, more experienced, more seasoned guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he left, he looked, I mean, I, n- not, no insults or anything. He looked like a young man. Now he looks like a grown man. Right, right, um, right. Which is, that's those, those experiences, those relationships and, and those friendships, I think is one of the best parts about backpacking. I've met some really cool people. I have these guys that I met on one of my first trips with my buddy, Jason, uh, that I call, you know, kind of affectionately the three wise men, because there were these three old guys that had, uh, hiked sections of the AT together over the last, you know, seven years, they do about 50 miles a year Mm -hmm. and they met as, um, uh, MRI repair guys. So they go out and fix x-ray machines and MRI machines and stuff. And they all work together. They decided to do this kind of towards the twilight of their careers. They're all retired now. Um, but you know, it was one of those things where I just got to ask them like, what am I bringing that I shouldn't, what should I be bringing that I'm not right. And tell me about some of your miles. And they were just, they had some really good experience to share. And it was this really valuable night in camp with some guys that I don't know their names. I'm probably never going to see them again, but that was one of the most fun nights I've ever had in camp. Yeah, no, the hundred percent because they've, they have that experience to give you some, some insight because you're going by what your experiences are. So no, it's good. Yeah. So Nick, anything else you want to share with the audience, with the crowd, with any of your friends before we call this a night? I think this has been a really good dig into, you know, how you're planning for the trip, what your expectations are, what kind of gear you're thinking about, where you're going to be heading. I obviously want to follow up with, you know, a second episode when you get back. But uh, anything else you want to share with people before we uh, kick off? No, I appreciate the uh, the interview. And it's been a pleasure again to make your acquaintance over the last couple of months. And uh, that's it. Thank you for the time. All right. Thanks so much for Nick coming on the podcast. We had a great conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, Things to look forward to coming up um, for Nick. He's obviously got this huge journey up in front of him. So check out Triple Nickel Outdoors on YouTube, on Instagram, on Facebook. Go find him. Uh, Give him some some love from Outdoors Podcast and let him know that's where you found him. Uh, And then also definitely, you know, check out all the rest of his content. He puts out some really, really great stuff. Definitely uh, at this point in his career, better than the content that I think we're even putting out. So he's a really, really good follow. Uh, Coming stuff, there's stuff that's coming down the the pipeline. I'm going to be doing a bunch of new video content around uh, float trips and fly fishing this summer. I've got some really fun new videos up online about some really fun uh, Midwest, St. Louis, and Missouri-based float trips. So go check that stuff out. And then I'm going to be doing some videos and podcasts coming up about some new fly fishing gear that I acquired uh, from a great store in St. Louis called T. Hargrove Fly Fishing. Uh, if you're in St. Louis or through the Midwest and you need a great outfitter, they are absolutely fantastic. We're going to have some really fun videos coming out with those guys. They were really, really great in letting me come and uh, film the whole process of getting a fly fishing rod for my birthday. So big shout out to T. Hargrove Fly Fishing in St. Louis. Check them out if you are around or online. So thanks so much for listening. We will have another episode out shortly. And check us out on YouTube. Instagram, Facebook, and all the other ones. Talk to you guys later.